Welcome to the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. I am Mike Huberty from American Ghost Walks, and I'm here with... Jeff Finnup of Badgerland Legends. And today we're going to be talking about Wisconsin and UFOs. Now, Mike, we are both ghost guys. What are we doing talking about UFOs? I was talking to somebody from California last week. We were talking about, like I just mentioned, kind of what I do for a living, which is talk about ghost stories. And they said, oh, Wisconsin, I bet that's great for paranormal. Indeed. Yeah, you know, it is great for paranormal. We have plenty of ghost stories. We have serial killers. We have Native American myths and how those kind of commingled with the European settler mythology and stuff and brought something new. And, oh yeah, and we have a bunch of UFO stuff too. But I did not realize how much UFO stuff we had. I mean, that person, when they said, oh, that sounds like a good place for paranormal. You have no idea. It might be the best place for paranormal. It it (laughs) might be, and I'm excited to see what you uncovered. I mean, just starting out with UFOs, you think that it starts in 1947 with Kenneth Arnold and the Flying Saucers, Mm -hmm. but it actually starts 50 years before that. This is something that not a lot of people know. Like I didn't know about this until a couple years ago when my sister Allison Jorland wrote an article for the AmericanGhostWalks.com website on the Milwaukee airship sightings of 1897. So this is going back before Flying Saucers. This is going back before airplanes. Yeah. Flying almost like dirigibles or airships, from my understanding. Right. So here's from our article. On the night of April 11th, 1897, at around 8 p.m., Milwaukee had a visitation. Witnesses all over the city saw something strange in the sky, a mysterious object passed that night. They called it the airship because the terms flying saucer and UFO wouldn't be coined for another 50 years. One downtown police officer reported seeing the airship while standing on Broadway. He described it as looking like four bright stars put together. It flashed the colors of white, red, and green. Although a local astronomer argued the airship must have only been a star, this policeman stood by his story. He claimed that the craft dipped and bobbed wildly several times before it sped off toward the northwest and disappeared from view. Unusual behavior for a star. Many other witnesses concurred that its rate of speed was unmistakable for the movement of ordinary stars. A central police lieutenant, however, claimed the airship was the product of hoaxers flying a kite from the North Point Lighthouse. He contended the airship was nothing more than a kite with a light attached, strung out on an incredible two miles of string. Even a Milwaukee Sentinel reporter questioned that explanation, though. The airship was seen all over the city. How could it have just been a kite? It would have to have the longest string in the world. Or several perpetrators flying kites, but it seems less likely almost. Right. Now, this next section is from KevinABarnes.com, and this is a a Milwaukee blogger. And funny enough, he wrote this particular thing after he was inspired by going on the Milwaukee Ghost Walk. And he said, oh, you know, I was just thinking about these Milwaukee airship sightings. And he went and did a blog article about it. Did some more research on it. Great. It wasn't just in Milwaukee. The Milwaukee portion of the 1897 airship mystery was immediately preceded by a sighting in Chicago on Friday, April 9th, 1897. An initial crowd gathered on Oakley Street on Chicago's north side and watched what was described by various witnesses as a red light, a manifestation, and an airship. Eventually, thousands of people saw the airship in Chicago, and later that evening, sightings were also reported in Evanston, Illinois, Lake Mills, Wisconsin, and finally Wausau at 10 p.m., creating the impression that a single mystery object was traveling north and west. Milwaukee's airship sightings began the next day, Saturday, April 10th, and were very well documented at the time, with coverage in the Milwaukee Journal, the Milwaukee Sentinel, the Daily News, and the evening Milwaukee Evening, Wisconsin. 
One of the most complete newspaper accounts of the Milwaukee sighting comes from the April 13, 1897 Burlington, Iowa Hawkeye, which is my favorite newspaper. It was first seen in the northern horizon, and about the only persons who were up at the time and were not seeing things double, as in they were drunk, were a few newspaper men, police officers, and a guard at the House of Correction. All of these are willing to make oath they saw an airship come from the north a little before the break of daylight, and then it disappeared again, reversing itself and fading from view in the north. Last night, the stranger made its appearance again in the heavens around 9 o'clock. It came from the northeast, from out over Lake Michigan. There was no possibility of a mistake this time. Thousands of people saw it, and in a few minutes, they were following the machine as it floated over the city. It traveled towards the southwest until it reached a point directly over the city hall, where it stopped for a quarter of an hour. Then the excitement in the downtown districts became intense. It was reported that attempts were being made to actually anchor the machine. Now here's something interesting about City Hall at that point. In 1897, the Milwaukee City Hall was the tallest inhabited building in the world. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that it came above City Hall and then that's where they're trying to like hook it or latch onto it. He continues. A Mr. Mayor, a traveling man, had a field glass ranged on the machine and said he distinctly saw four men in it. So, had a telescope. Spotting scope or something like that. And he saw four men in the machine. Station keeper Harry Moore of the Central Police Station saw it distinctly and was one of the few who at the same time did not lose his head. He says, the machine, or whatever it was, anchored or stopped directly over the city hall. The light which I saw was suspended from a large, dark, oval-shaped object, the shadow of which could be distinctly seen. In fact, it could be seen so plainly that I could discern the wheels working. I did not see anyone in it, but anyone who claims that the thing I saw floating over City Hall is a star simply don't know what he's talking about. I saw it too distinctly to be fooled. It was, I should judge, about a thousand feet over the City Hall. After hovering for 15 minutes, it went back and disappeared in the northeast. So that happens in Milwaukee. And it's funny, the Milwaukee Sentinel, April 10th, 1897, so that day... Guess what the headline is? Airship coming this way. Hmm. So the newspaper was kind of setting that up. From the Sentinel, airship coming this way. Chicago sends word, but Milwaukeeans watch the heavens in vain. A report was received from Chicago last night that an airship had passed over that city, traveling in the direction of Milwaukee. Dispatches were also received from towns and cities in Illinois in chronological order, showing that the course of the mysterious aerial voyager, unless changed, would pass directly over the city. So the day that all of the people saw something, April 10th, 1897, was also the day that in the morning they had an announcement in the newspaper that an airship was coming this way. So they almost primed the witnesses to look just to a, the skies. Just a bit. Yeah, <laughs> just, just a, a bit. bit. Don't think that Milwaukee was the only place or Wausau or anything because the first UFO in Madison skies is also... 1897. This comes from a, uh, a Capital Times article from the 1980s, September 17, 1986. Uh, there was an article called Frank Custer's Madison, talking about the old days. First UFO spotted in Madison skies in 1897. Madisonians tried to laugh it off when an unidentified flying object, presumed to be an airship, flew over the city back in the horse and buggy days. In a time when airships were in the experimental stage, none of them around here and the airplane was seen in the northeast end of town on the night of April 11th and again on April 14th. Chicago on the 9th, Milwaukee on the 10th, and now Madison on the 11th. The report of a cigar-shaped object with a propeller at the rear and its lower portion composed of white metal shaped like a ship's keel caught the fancy of Madisonia. Overnight Madison residents who had read about it in the newspaper became sky watchers. 
The State Journal on April 12, 1897 carried a story in which unnamed townsmen told of their seeing an object like an airship. It was probably a star, said another. Brilliant lights were reported, especially by those who used opera glasses. The thing wavered up and down, just as the boats of the aerial rapid transport line might be expected to do, the newspaper story said. A fifth ward man said the object was shaped like a catamaran. Another man said he read the name Star Tickler on the object's <laughs> That's a side. Name. A lady who was brought up with the Indians and has very sharp hearing said she caught a glimpse of a face laughing as it would split and heard a voice say, Has the sucker fishing began down there yet? Okay. So obviously they were making a joke out of it by, April, by April 12, 1897. But interestingly enough, this article goes on to say, that there was a second UFO phenomenon occurring in 1910 that was witnessed by a number of family members living in the North Livingston and North Rearley Streets vicinity of Madison. The people, according to a state journal story, saw a, quote, a ship approaching from the north headed south across Lake Mendota. They described it as slowing down, descending, hovering as if seeking a place to land, then flying off to the southwest. The witnesses, Mrs. Neil Stark, 218 North Livingston Street, widow of a local realtor, Mrs. Mary Matney, 208 North Brearley, a clerk at the Keeley, Neckerman, and Kessenich store, and members of the families of Joe Ifflemuth, 210 North Livingston, a house painter. So they took that one a lot more seriously in 1910 than they did in 1897. So that just leads me to kind of believe that the 1897 airships, while I love the story of the dirigibles, or whatever, flying over the Midwest in 1897. The fact that they were already making fun of it two days later. I remember finding a story saying that the the resident sea serpent in Lake Mendota, Bojo, yes. was upset by the sightings because it was attracting all the attention away from him. <laughs> yeah, they were already kind of tongue-in-cheek right. with the newspaper accounts. I just think that's interesting because when we look at a lot of these stories today, we look back like, okay, well, they've been seeing these UFOs since 1897. And, you know, we look at sea serpent articles. We look at airship articles and things from the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. And they're not written really tongue-in-cheek. However, they might have been written to sell papers. And if you listen to our Hodang episode, we go into the snake editor and some of the other tricksterish characters that swap stories right. between different publications talking about unidentified animals or what we would characterize as cryptids or tall tales. And they certainly were not afraid of tall tales in the late 19th century in the newspaper. It it definitely sold papers. Yes. The airships coming this way, warning the people of Milwaukee before the night where everybody saw one. And you Uh, can almost see the little kid on the corner saying, extra, extra, read about the airship coming in (laughs) hawking newspapers. Right. Probably charging extra. Right. I'd buy it. If somebody said the the UFOs are coming, you have my nickel. Yeah. And again, this is long before there was any X-Files or any Kenneth Arnold. You know, this is 50 years before, as you said. It is quite perplexing. And this was, what, five years before Kitty Hawk? Yeah, at least. So the manned aerial phenomenon, period, whether explained or not, was not a common thing in a lexicon. Right. Probably the closest thing anybody to flying would be a hot air balloon. Yeah. Some kind of air balloon, yeah. And that'd be about it. So that's kind of the start of Wisconsin's history of UFOs, at least the modern era, starts in 1897 with the invasion of the airships into Milwaukee, Madison, and even into Wausau. 
So that's right. If you're from Wausau, the aliens were even interested in you. The next thing that happened in 1897, though, that I think is worth talking about, is it's the year that the Yerkes Observatory in southeastern Wisconsin in Walworth County is opened. Yeah, I think it's Williams Bay just outside mm -hmm. of Lake Geneva, just on the other side of Geneva Lake from Lake Geneva. And so Yerkes played a significant role in the study of astronomy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It was established in 1897 and housed the largest refracting telescope in the world at the time. The observatory's impressive telescope, known as the Great Yerkes Refractor, had a 40-inch aperture and was designed and built by Alvin Clark and Sons. This telescope provided astronomers with a powerful tool to observe and study celestial objects. The observatory itself was renowned for its magnificent grounds and architecture, the Renaissance-esque design of the buildings, as well as the beautifully landscaped surroundings, and it gives it a castle-like appearance. Yeah, it's still a sight to see today. And uh, the grounds were designed by the famous landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted, who is known for his work on none other than Central Park in New York City. One of the notable achievements at Yerkes was the discovery of the atmosphere of Saturn's moon Titan. Astronomer Gerard Kuiper, who, what do you think they named after him, the Kuiper Belt, made, which is not, like, Kuiper Belt is in space, doesn't use to, like, keep up your pants, <laughs> um, made this groundbreaking discovery while working at Yerkes. This finding would later be confirmed and further explored by space missions such as Voyager 1 and the Cassini-Huygens spacecraft. In addition to its scientific contributions, the Yerkes Observatory was a hub for advancements in astrophotography. The observatory's telescopes and equipment enabled astronomers to capture detailed images of nebulas and different types of stars. Even Albert Einstein visited Yerkes Observatory. And in the Lake Geneva Museum, they have the newspaper articles and pictures from when Einstein visited Yerkes. Now, Einstein is great. However, there's also somebody who used to work at the Yerkes Observatory that I think we're going to find is much more important in the history of UFOs. It might be the father of ufology. That's right. So this is from the book The Close Encounters Man, and that's written by our friend Mark O'Connell. Mark O'Connell is a writer from my hometown, Big Bend, Wisconsin. Very nice. And he wrote a couple episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and then Deep Space Nine. Really great science fiction writer and screenwriter. And he's also always been fascinated with UFOs, was a member of MUFON in Wisconsin for a long time. And then he wrote the biography of J. Allen Hynek called The Close Encounters Man. And so in 1932, J. Allen Hynek, who would eventually become the head of Project Blue Book, Mm -hmm. which was the Air Force investigation into the UFO phenomena. He was professor of astronomy at Northwestern University. I was going to say he was a Chicago guy that mm -hmm. moved up to Wisconsin, so Lake Geneva, not far nope. from Chicago. And so this is before... Too close if you ask me. Right, but this is before he even earned his PhD. So in 1932, you know, 20 years before the Air Force taps him to start going in and investigating UFOs, he moves to the Yerkes Observatory to earn his PhD, and he got married. Did he get married at the observatory? I do not believe so. I do not believe so. But this is from Mark O'Connell's book, The Close Encounters Man. It was noted by Yerke's staff that Heineck, in his first weeks at the observatory, was a very industrious worker, to the point that he was quickly driving himself to exhaustion. The doctor said he was run down due to overwork and improper eating, a concerned staffer wrote to Dr. Otto Struve, who had recently replaced the retired Frost as director. It seems he ate very infrequently and worked half or more of the night. 
but overwork and malnutrition were not the only dangers faced by a young grad student like Heineck. As beautiful as it was, the brown brick Romanesque observatory building with its riotous terracotta decorations commemorating the zodiac and ancient astronomical mythology provided the housing for the underpaid students. The roof leaked and the room became cold, a dark tomb on winter weekends when the electric power and heat were turned off in the building, so all the power was turned off except to the telescope. This is reported by the University of Chicago historian Donald Osterbrock. Water dripped in during summer thunderstorms and snow drifted in during the winter. But one man's, quote, cold, dark tomb, quote, is another man's fortress of solitude, and as Heineck worked in his measurements of stellar spectra as the, quote, lonely Yerkes Observatory on the tranquil shores of Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, he found solace in his isolation. You go to this observatory with just a few other people there, and you feel like you might be a monk looking at the heavens, learning the secrets of the universe, said Heineck's colleague, Dr. Mark Rudiger. You can see how that would lead to spiritual feelings in the right personality. Night after night, under the 90-foot main dome, Heineck peered into the firmament, studying the ancient light given off by distant yellow-white dwarf stars and forgetting that anything else ever existed, or ever would. Science and mysticism came together every night in the eyepiece of his telescope. Time vanished. Dimensions contracted. The whole thing had sort of a mystical quality, Heineck confessed later in life. One shouldn't say that in connection with science, I guess. But I was so utterly absorbed in the life of the observatory that I had hardly heard of Hitler. Remember, this is the 1930s we're talking about. Mm. Hitler comes to power in 1933. Okay, so actually, he did not get married at the observatory. He gets married to Martha Dune Alexander in Fayetteville, Arkansas, on Christmas Eve of 1932. So he heads down to the saw to tie the knot. Although very little information about this romance exists today, it does prove that Heineck's existence wasn't entirely monastic. Heineck admitted to being a reader of Rudolf Steiner, mm-hmm. a theosophist. And we talk about theosophy extensively in the Frank Lloyd Wright episode because mm-hmm. theosophy was a major influence on, on Wright. And so that's the late 19th century, early part of the 20th century, and that's when Rudolf Steiner is doing his writing. And Heineck read that as a boy as well. And so in in Mark O'Connell's book, he says, it's not difficult to imagine that during his nights of mystical seclusion at Yerkes, Heineck continued to read Steiner and wondered about how he might access the quote-unquote super-sensible realm. So Rudolf Steiner, a lot of his stuff was about education. Um, Waldorf schools come from uh, like Steiner's philosophy. And the idea of the super-sensible realm. Well, what does that mean? From dictionary.com. Beyond the reach of the senses, above the natural powers of external perception, super-sensual, applied either to that which is physical, but of such a nature as not to be perceptible by any normal sense, or to that which is spiritual, and so not an object of any possible sense. So you can see the super-sensible realm, that's where UFOs exist. We perceive them. It's something, but you, you can't understand them because we don't know who's in them or what's happening. Spirits are like this, but so are atoms. So are viri, you know, the plural of virus. Mm-hmm. So are germs. So are genes. They're there, but they're beyond the reach of perception. And so that was just a little waxing poetic, I think, that Mark did about the Yeah, so I, I never knew that about Heineck, that he was esoterically inclined and actually 
Red Steiner. He probably didn't want to talk about it too much when he was the professor of astronomy at Northwestern. Also, funny enough, another connection to the paranormal from J. Allen Hynek is that Dr. Lloyd Auerbach, parapsychologist who wrote a whole bunch of classic parapsychology books, was a consultant on the one of my favorite TV shows from the 1980s called uh, Shadow Chasers. One of the things that inspired him to go into the paranormal growing up in Chicago is that he was one of Dr. Hynek's students mm. at Northwestern. Okay. And he's like, if there's somebody I respect so much who was brilliant at astronomy mm. and straight astronomy, straight science, could also have this interest in something more. Someone this brilliant also has a thirst for this kind of knowledge. Then it's okay for him. 1932, the father of ufology is in Wisconsin at mm-hmm. Yerkes Observatory looking at the sky at night. That's so cool. Now we're going to talk about the godmother of ufology. Exactly. And, you know, this is another person that I had hardly, you know, just like I didn't know about the 1897 Milwaukee airships, I didn't know that uh, Coral and Jim Lorenzen existed until like a couple months ago. I knew about them a few years ago. I know about the legacy they led, but I don't know about anything personally. So I'm excited to see what you uncovered. We're going to get in that. So now we're in 1934. So it's two years after Hynek comes to Yerkes, Coral Lorenzen has this experience in 1934 that leads her down this path. She was a prominent figure in the field of ufology. She, along with her husband Jim, co-founded the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO, in 1952. APRO was one of the first civilian organizations dedicated to the scientific study of UFOs. And in her book, The Great Flying Saucer Hoax, The UFO Facts and Their Interpretations, This is how she describes her original story. The beginning of the mystery of UFOs was, for me at least, on a sunny summer day in Barron, Wisconsin in 1934. The details of that sighting are still fresh in my mind, and although I was only nine years old at the time, I was very much impressed by what I saw. Barron in 1934 was a small town of about 1,500 population. Airliners were rarely, if ever, seen. It would be safe to say weather balloons were never seen, and indeed, even a small monoplane was an event in that area. The thing was in the west-southwest when I first noticed it. I called it to the attention of my two playmates, and one said she thought it was a parachute. Its color was a glowing white. The object was about as large as a dime held at arm's length. There were no ropes or lines suspended from it, and therefore, no parachutist. It could best be described as resembling an open umbrella without the ribs or spurs. It made no sound as it wobbled in a northwest direction across the clear, cloudless sky. It wasn't going fast. Rather, it was poking along at a leisurely rate of speed and with a rather strange motion, that which has been described in recent reports as undulating. Almost like a jellyfish. Yeah, (laughs) right, the way she makes it described. Like a sky jellyfish. Sky jellyfish. We watched the object for perhaps 20 seconds. Then it appeared to go over the horizon, or perhaps it came to rest north of Barron in the vicinity of a body of water referred to locally as the Upper Dam. I went home and told my father, who made inquiries, and the matter was dropped. No one had seen the object except we three children, and there was no news of a parachutist landing north of the dam. That 1934 UFO sighting in Barron. And she was nine years old at the time. Right. We also talked about Barron, Wisconsin, because that's where kids saw the... In the Haunchyville episode, we discussed like the the marching little oh, people. Oh, the um, 
Harry Anderson and the Little People. Yeah. Was that that was near Barron, I it believe. Near Barron, yeah. so Wisconsin. This is, this is the North Woods of Wisconsin and like Mike said in the article in nineteen thirty four, it was a rarity and probably a spectacle to even see just a monoplane. Right. Flying overhead. Now we got two weird things happening in Barron, Wisconsin. I gotta see what's happening there. This is before UFOs kind of take over the consciousness. Mm-hmm. And really it's in 1947 where we have another craze. I mean, I, I've read about this original sighting a thousand times as a kid, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize that it wasn't just in Mount Rainier, Washington, where people were seeing UFOs in that same month of June to July of 1947. The big one, Kenneth Arnold. His UFO sighting is one of the most famous and influential in history. It occurs June 24, 1947. Kenneth Arnold, an experienced pilot and businessman, is flying his private plane near Mount Rainier in Washington State. Arnold reported seeing a formation of nine unidentified objects flying in a crescent-like shape at incredible speeds. He described the objects as saucer-like or disc-like and estimated their speed to be over 1,200 miles per hour, much faster than any known aircraft at the time. Arnold's description of the movements, like a saucer skipping on water, led to the popularization of the term flying saucer to describe unidentified flying objects. His sighting is considered the beginning of the flying saucer era. Mm -hmm. Now, this happens June 24, 1947. What happens two weeks later? Roswell. Right. Roswell happens just in July of 1947. But what else is happening? This makes the news. This hits Kenneth Arnold sees the flying saucers. Who else is seeing flying saucers? From Ted Bletcher's report on the UFO wave of 1947. UFO wave. So now we have these. It's interesting that it doesn't seem like just one place has a sighting. It seems like once a sighting happens somewhere, sightings start happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ted Bletcher is a New York singer and actor who was fascinated with UFOs and was a founding member of the UFO group Civilian Saucer Intelligence. He wrote up all these different reports that came in in June and July of 1947. Case 277, July 4th, Madison, Wisconsin. Mr. and Mrs. William Ecker of 2071 Winnebago Street reported they Not had far walked... from you. That's right by uh, where I live, so I'm going to have to keep my eyes out. They had watched a strangely maneuvering object over Madison at 9.30 p.m. Central Time. The object was first seen by Mrs. Ecker, who called her husband out to see it. According to the witnesses, the object appeared to be flying in circles over Madison's downtown section, a mile south of their home. It would fly in a circle for about five minutes, reported the Eckers, then shoot off a mile to the south, tear back again, stand still for half a minute, then start circling again. The Eckers said the object, described as round and bright, repeated this maneuver three times before it finally disappeared to the south in a straight course, going very fast. Case 373, July 5th, Janesville, Wisconsin. A disc-like object performing similar maneuvers to those observed the previous night in Madison was reported by four people in Janesville. Mr. and Mrs. Al Sievert and Mr. and Mrs. Howard Roth told radio station WCLO at 11.35 p.m. Central Standard Time they had seen a disc-shaped object flying northwest, just like a plate on edge. The object was then said to have circled counterclockwise in a wide oval flight pattern at terrific speed, stopping abruptly and then flying out of sight at great speed. The object then came back into view, hovered momentarily for two minutes, and then resumed the same counterclockwise circling as before. July 4th, Madison. July 5th, Janesville. 
Now, case 12, 1947. About June 17th. So a couple weeks earlier. But also before Kenneth Arnold and Mount Rainier. Madison, Wisconsin. Dr. E.B. McGilvery, professor emeritus of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin, had spent the evening playing cards at the home of Mrs. Mary North on Middleton Road. He had hardly left the house quite late when he saw a bright round object about two-thirds the size of the full moon moving through the sky from the southwest to northeast. Professor McGilvery described the speed of the object as quite rapid but not as fast as a meteor. It left no trail of light as a meteor usually does and did not appear to be fiery but looked more like an illuminated body. He called to Mrs. North to come look at it, but by the time she came out, the object had vanished in the northeast. This happens. There's a UFO sighting in Madison by a University of Wisconsin professor a week before mm-hmm. Kenneth Arnold, but also a week after, July 3rd, 1947. Now, this is from the W Files classic website, which we've used a dozen times here. Definitely. Three Madisonians driving to Milwaukee were among the first in the state to see a UFO. The flying saucer craze had only begun a month earlier and was still so new that they hadn't even heard about it. The witnesses were Ted Boyle, a member of the Madison Common Council, his mother, and Ruth Donard. Boyle described the UFO as a bright, silvery object high over the north horizon. It was shinier than the Dickens, he said. (laughs) It was oval-shaped. We watched it for two or three minutes, and then it disappeared all of a sudden. It kept the oval shape, and then it seemed to flatten out into a circular shape like a platter, and then it disappeared. After arriving in Milwaukee, Boyle learned about the flying saucer phenomena and reported the sighting. So, 1947. It's not only Mount Rainier, it's not only Roswell, there's sightings in Wisconsin. And this is 50 years before the internet really took storm. Right. So the dissemination of information was peer-to-peer or newspaper readers telling other newspaper readers what they're reporting. So for this to be reported as it is shows that there's a larger phenomenon at work. And it's not just a mass hysteria because the information just couldn't move that quickly from Mount Rainier to Madison or vice versa. And it it goes to the state. It goes to all these different places. You know, Madison, Janesville, Waukesha, the third, the fourth, the fifth. Mm -hmm. That's what I think is fascinating about these particular things is that I always remember reading about the Kenneth Arnold sighting. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I was the start of the UFO era. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize Kenneth Arnold was just the beginning in that particular year. So that this is another UFO wave. Now, a few years later, people are fascinated with UFOs, mm-hmm. including Coral and Jim Lorenzen. And so in 1952, they start APRO, that Area Phenomenon Research Organization. And they start it in Sturgeon Bay. From the great UFO hoax book that Coral wrote. In November 1947, we moved to Phoenix. And in 1949, we left for Los Angeles. UFO sightings were not receiving the publicity they had in the previous two years. And except for an occasional wire service story, things were pretty quiet. In 1951, a Burbank acquaintance, who was also very interested in UFOs, suggested I attempt to organize a civilian research group. I was considering it when we moved to Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin in August 1951. And in January 1952, after contacting other amateur astronomers who were interested in the subject of UFOs, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization came into being. In July 1952, our first mimeographed bulletin was mailed to 52 members. 
And in the fall of 1952, I started doing news correspondent work and feature writing for the Green Bay Press Gazette. And consequently, I met a lot of people who were a great assistance to me in tracking down early unpublished sightings in Wisconsin. Here's an article about her from uh, the Victoria, Texas Advocate newspaper in February 18, 1954. Private group evaluating flying saucer reports. Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. Did you ever see a flying saucer? If so, Coral Lenson of Sturgeon Bay would like to hear about it, provided the object can't be explained away as a natural phenomenon. The 28-year-old housewife and mother heads the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, a nonprofit group that gathers, studies, and evaluates data on flying saucers. Mrs. Lorenzen abhors crackpots and others who think that every light in the sky that doesn't come from a heavenly body is a spaceship hurtling from Mars bent on destruction. She and members of her far-flung organization are intent upon discovering what apparently inexplicable objects really see and why there's been a rash of flying saucers. Reports of saucer sightings are forwarded by members of April to the organization's main chapter here, and chapters are spread around the country as far away as Australia. We try, said Mrs. Lorenzen, to fit any sighting into one of the following categories before labeling it as a bona fide aerial phenomena. Unidentified balloons, conventional aircraft reflections, meteors, or atmospheric phenomena. So, she's the first debunker. So she's debunking and classifying the sites and trying to give some context to what people are seeing. And this is from a 28-year-old housewife in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. So that's quite the accomplishment. Yes. Now, Jim does, her husband, is working for the armed services. That's why they're traveling around so much. Okay. And it sounds like she's also a freelance writer for the Press Gazette in right. Green Bay. But she joins just so she can do UFO research. And in fact, she even goes and joins this organization, which was probably there to look for Soviet issues at the beginning of the space age. I suppose this is post-World War II, right. but on the buildup to the Cold War. Right. Remember, the Soviets get the bomb, like, at the very end of the 40s with the Rosenbergs and stuff like that. They mm -hmm. get the nuclear secrets. And in the mid to late 1950s, you have the Soviets launch Sputnik and things. And so mm -hmm. the space becomes the next battlefield after yeah. the Second World War. The Air Force is looking for civilian observers of the sky. And this is from the Green Bay Press-Gazette, January 21st, 1953. Observation tower dedicated in Sturgeon Bay ceremonies. Tuesday, Major General Ralph J. Olson, State Director of Civil Defense, dedicated Sturgeon Bay's Ground Observer Corps Observation Tower on the City Hall here at 11.30 a.m. At the same time, two F-86 Sabre jets from Madison Airfield roared over the city saluting the Ground Observation Corps here. Almost every person in Sturgeon Bay heard the jet planes, but very few saw them, which highlighted the need for civilian observers on 24-hour watch for complete air security. The Sturgeon Bay Air Defense Ground Observer Corps has 110 volunteer observers who keep an average watch of 16 hours a day. Mrs. Coral Lorenzen, Sturgeon Bay, is supervisor of this unit, and Clifford Willis is the chief observer. The city underwrote the $500 cost of erecting the sky-watching post for this area, and numerous establishments have furnished and equipped the tower. So, so they built her a tower, even. Right. So Coral... She becomes on staff of the Green Bay Gazette so she can research and write about UFOs. And there's a whole bunch of stories in the Green Bay Gazette in the 1950s just on UFOs from different conventions and, and different sightings across the country. And then she joins the Ground Observer Corps for Civilian Defense where they have 16 hours a day they have people looking at the skies. Mm -hmm. And she's like, what better way to see UFOs than 
have a dedicated team where they have a report or something they see. So they have an official purpose. And then also Coral's also like, well, while you got your eyes on the sky, we can look for anomalous area phenomenon. Right. So this is why she's great. Because she's a bulldog about Mm. it. She sees that thing when she's nine years old. And then 20 years later, she's like, you know what? I'm going to start an organization and then I'm going to do all I can to to learn about it. And then I'm going to do all I can to see another one myself. So she's fascinating. Definitely. Now, eventually, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, after being in Sturgeon Bay for a decade, in the late 60s, her and her husband move out to Tucson, Arizona. And by that point, their organization changed a little bit. And so they were paying attention to all these West Coast sightings and stuff in the desert in Arizona. Mm -hmm. While they had these observers in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And so like Illinois, Michigan... Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa. They have this whole group of people that felt that the Lorenzans were no longer paying enough attention to them since they moved to Tucson. Mm -hmm. So they form the Midwest Unidentified Flying Object Network, which eventually becomes... The Mutual. So MUFON comes from APRO, Mm -hmm. which the Lorenzans created. And so MUFON's still going, and now it's a full United States organization. So it went from Midwest to Mutual UFO Network, and that's the, the more national chapters and organization. Right. It's funny because they felt that the Lorenzans who had, they started the whole thing and they were running it, but when they moved to Tucson, they just weren't paying enough attention to the Midwest people anymore. So since they felt left out, we're going to start this thing ourselves. All right. And really, when you look at the Tucson newspapers, when Coral Lorenzen dies, it's just how like she had even turned Tucson into like a UFO center of research. So her dedication, even in her obituary in the newspapers, talked about how she had kind of transformed the town into a place that was people were interested in UFOs and keeping their eyes on the sky. And what we know from modern day, whether it's Roswell or Area 51, we got Art Bell just outside of Las Vegas and Pahrump, yeah, or the Phoenix Lights. The desert is a place of high strangeness and with clear desert skies. It's a great place to observe this phenomenon. The Lorenzans were interesting characters. Now, part of me also says like, well, if he was working in the armed services and they were so into this kind of thing and she was so single-minded about it, was she a fed? Did she have a covert op? Was she uh, an agent of sorts? Was she feeding us the Cold War kind of stuff, the Cold War counterintelligence? (laughs) You never know. But either way, I really admire her. And the fact that MUFON started right in Sturgeon Bay. Mm -hmm. The father of ufology, he's in Wisconsin as he's in this Renaissance-style building like a monk studying the sky. We have the godmother of ufology who starts classifying different sightings and starts the first organization to take in everybody's reports and collect them together in one place. That starts in Wisconsin. And you're like, that's really cool. What other great sightings happen in Wisconsin? Well, I know which one you're getting to next, and it is my absolute favorite from all of ufology, and it happens in Eagle River, Wisconsin, in Wisconsin's North Woods. Tell us a little bit more about the Simon Tin encounter. Right. So everything's pretty serious so far. And you're like, wow, that's, that's really great. And then there's Joe Simonton. And so this is from the Chippewa Herald Telegram, April 24th, 1961. Eagle River plumber with good reputation tells a flying saucer, trades jug of water for three cosmic cookies. This is from Associated Press. 
A plumber told authorities Saturday he traded a jug of water for three cosmic cookies in a silent bit of swapping with three men in a flying saucer. Joe Simonton told this story to District Attorney Calvin A. Burton of Vilas County. The saucer landed on his property shortly before noon last Tuesday. It was a gleaming silver, brighter than chrome machine and appeared to hover over the ground instead of landing. It was about 12 feet from top to bottom and about 30 feet in diameter. Out of the hatch that opened popped one man dressed in a black suit who held up a jug and indicated that he wanted it filled with water. There were two other men inside the saucer and Simonton saw an instrument panel. All the men were about five feet tall and weighed about 125 pounds. Not one spoke a word to Simonton or each other. Simonton filled the jug with water and gave it to the man who remained outside the ship. One of the saucer trio then gave him three cakes, about one-eighth inch thick and three or four inches in diameter. The man got into the ship with the jug of water, the hatch snapped shut, and it took off. Simonton said the ship had exhaust pipes six or seven inches in diameter. Burton said that Simonton quote, sounded sincere, unquote, and added that the plumber had a good reputation in the community. Simonton told the district attorney he was reluctant to talk about the incident earlier because some people might think it's preposterous. Simonton gave one of the cakes to County Judge Frank Carter Sr. The judge was supposed to have sent the cake somewhere for analysis, but no one knows where. I think Carter ate it. He probably wanted to try it. I'd want to try alien cakes. I want to try an alien cake tonight. Obviously, this is ridiculous. He also described them as Italian-looking, too. Like, he described them as kind of swarthy. Yeah, the accounts kind of varied, and Simonton went on to produce a one-page pamphlet on the encounter. In his own words, I think he sold it for a dollar. So he wasn't making money off of this per se. I mean, a dollar a pamphlet, I don't know how many he moved. And I was actually able to track down a PDF of the original pamphlet. Yeah. So if you want a copy of that... Hit me up at Badgerland Legends or Jeff at BadgerlandLegends.com and I'll send it to you. Okay. But yeah, it, it's kind of interesting to read his. He didn't have an editor. It's very colloquial the way that he describes things in there. The way a man from Eagle River so in 1961 seems, would speak. It seems preposterous, but he seems sincere. So that's where it makes me pause. Well, like you said, he wasn't making a lot of money on it. And this May 3rd, 1961, this is the Green Bay Press Gazette. Aerial study unit, not high on Eagle River space cake. Plumber Joe Simonson went back to catch basins today and said the next flying saucer he sees, he'll keep it to himself. I haven't been able to work for three weeks now, and I'm going to have to start making some money, Simonson said. The three-week layoff began when Simonson announced three visitors in a flying saucer traded some space pancakes for a jug of water. It ended Tuesday when the National Investigating Committee for Aerial Phenomena refused to investigate the pancakes. He said he's been deluged by letters, including one from Australia, and not many from skeptics and cranks. I don't know when I'll get around to answering them, he said. I don't care what anybody else believes. I just know what I saw. If it happened again, I don't think I'd tell anybody about it. However, Simonton has not lost hope that the true contents of the cakes will be discovered. He said both the Air Force and Northwestern University are planning to analyze the cakes. Simonton said that a man he identified as Dr. Heineck of Northwestern has agreed to investigate one of the cakes and let him know the results in about two weeks. As for the Air Force, well, Simonton said that they're always going to analyze a cake, but have indicated that they will keep their results secret. So there he is. Joe Simonton is now dealing with the father of ufology. Dr. Heineck comes up to Eagle River to get the pancakes. And this is 30 years after his work at the Air Keys 
And he's going back up to the North Woods right. to like, check out the uh, pancakes to... from outer space. I got to come back to Wisconsin because this plumber had a weird encounter with three swarthy aliens about five foot tall and 125 pounds who ate disgusting pancakes. Well, Heineck did have an opinion about it, and he talks about it with Jacques Vallée, a great UFO writer and researcher. Probably the premier writer on ufology today, one of the most highly regarded with Passport to Magonia and some of his other works. He's thought as kind of an out-of-the-box thinker. Definitely. On the phenomena. Right. He doesn't just go as whether they're nuts and like UFOs are nuts and bolts or they're aliens. He doesn't try to speculate on anything. He goes right into just different ideas of what they could be, but also not committing to anything. He's just a great analyst and, mm-hmm. and UFO writer. Uh, in the 70s, he had a discussion with J. Allen Hynek that was moderated by one of their friends. And it's called The Edge of Reality, a progress report on unidentified flying objects. And they have a chapter called The Landing at Eagle River. Jacques Vallée, what about situations like the Eagle River case that was mentioned earlier where the occupants were ordinary men? You remember the man in Wisconsin with the pancakes? Heineck. Oh, good old Joe Simonton. Vallée, Joe Simonton. Now, he wasn't in the same psychological category as Adamski. George Adamski was a California guy that said that he was talking to Venusians and things like that in the 1950s. And he was definitely trying to make money, like the UFO phenomena. Mm-hmm. He said he got pictures of aliens and things like that. He was always trying to sell them. Heineck. No, I'm beginning to think more of Joe Simonton than I did at the time. Valet. I think he is telling the truth, frankly. Heineck. So do I. He was. The things he said fit now, whereas they didn't fit. At least they didn't fit to me at the time. I thought it was just sheer nonsense. You know the story of Joe Simonton? Well, suddenly the Air Force hears that a UFO has allegedly landed at Eagle River, Wisconsin, and some pancakes had been given to this guy by the occupants. I went up there and I talked with him, and I took pictures and so forth. First of all, I was not at all impressed with him personally or with his surroundings. He lived by himself. He'd been divorced. He lived in a sort of a shack on the outskirts of town, and there was nothing to give you a feeling of confidence. This man could have been a wino. The yard was sort of unkempt, bottles and so forth. Not wine bottles necessarily, but just untidy. Yeah, he was a plumber, not the most cleanliest trade, right? And then he was also a chicken farmer, too. So imagine he had chickens roaming around the property. You go up to the North Woods and you get outside of Rhinelander, and it can get pretty redneck pretty quick. And I can imagine 1961, it was no different, except for maybe they have indoor plumbing now. (laughs) Right. Heineck meets him. He's like, the man could have been a wino. His story was that he was having breakfast one morning. He heard a whining noise outside. He looked out the window, and there was a silvery ship descending. It was hovering. It didn't land. Hovered in the backyard, and of course he went out to see what was happening. The door opened, and a creature beckoned to him. And then as he got close, one of them handed down the most beautiful thermos jug he'd ever seen. He said that the creature didn't talk, but indicated by sign language, water, you know. So he got the idea. He went inside, filled it with water. He brought it out and indicated, now you can drink. But they must have misunderstood him because they thought he wanted something to eat. So they handed him these pancakes. I kept a sample of the pancake and I took it back to Dayton. My interpretation at that time was that he'd been having pancakes himself for breakfast and had suddenly had a waking dream or what known as psychology, I believe, as an isolation hypnosis or isolation delusion. And if he'd had his family with him or other people around, it would have been quite different. A delusion could then have been ruled out. That's why I don't like single witness cases, as they used to say in Roman law, one witness is no witness. Then he said it just took off, and in two or three seconds it was gone. And I said, no sonic boom? No. 
The trees waved a little bit, but no. Well, I just put it down as a sheer delusion at the time, but hell, certain little things hit. No nuts and bolts and no rivets, everything very smooth, rapid disappearance, no sonic boom and the trees being disturbed. I don't know. He certainly wasn't reading any UFO literature. And the moderator says, Well, uh, what about the pancakes? Heineck. Those were examined and were found to be ordinary grain pancakes. The moderator. I meant the Air Force wasn't able to say, Well, this is processed pancake batter from Aunt Jemima's? Heineck. They couldn't tell in great detail, although I think they said it was wheat germ pancake. Well, you wouldn't get anywhere using a story like that, and I wouldn't use it. First of all, on the general grounds of a single witness, and then Jacques Vallée is like, we disagree about that, you know. Heineck's like, we do. It's an honest disagreement. I recognize this point, but I think you misunderstand me. I may believe a single witness, but I think there is little positive value in presenting the case outside because they'll say it's just a single witness and he might have been lying. Now, Hastings, the, the moderator, he brings something also in that's kind of outside the idea of aliens. Isn't this sounds a, like some Joshua Cutchin stuff that we're getting into right. here. Isn't there a fairy bread precedent for that? If the fairy is giving food, of course, then it's not just an ordinary pancake. Ballet. The exchange of food and fairy lore is a very common symbolic gesture, and with elves, it's a consistent way of making contact. They often give you pancakes. The moderator. In Tolkien's ring books, the fairies give flat pancake-like objects. And Ballet. Well, in Irish poetry, they live on crispy pancakes and yellow-tide foam. The moderator, maybe they did come from Aunt Jemima. I don't know. They've got to get it from somewhere. Maybe steal it from a local warehouse? Heineck, bringing things back down to earth. (laughs) The only thing that I'm uneasy about, and I expect the two of you are also, is that we recognize that the subject is much more complex than we present. Jacques has called this the Magonia Syndrome, the whole craziness of the thing, the whole absurdity. It's another world, another realm, that seems to have some interlocking with ours. And what we're describing here is just that interlocking. You know, I didn't know about this interview, but I am so glad that this was documented because I didn't know that Valet spoke with Heineck about this. Right. And getting into this weird world of the woo with the fairy lore and everything. Thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah. When I saw that, I was like looking for different stuff on Joe Simonson. It may be stuff that I hadn't heard in other Mm -hmm. places. And I'm like, when I heard Heineck was there, I'm like, what did he write about it? And then when I saw this, I was like, wow. That's amazing. um, Them having a conversation. So that's 1961, and that's a big thing that makes the newspapers. Obviously, people are talking about it 15 years. We're talking about it 60 years later. We know how successful the Hodeg Heritage Festival was this past year. Yes. Mothman Festival and all of these hometown festivals. The Eagle River Chamber of Commerce Mm -hmm. needs to have an alien pancake breakfast fundraiser in honor of Mr. Simonton. I think they're missing a huge opportunity. I'd go. I'd make some very bland pancakes to represent the Space Brothers. There was also a big case that Heineck was involved in in 1966. And it started in Michigan, and it also has a Wisconsin connection. March 14, 1966, this is from the Ann Arbor News, and it describes the area's initial UFO sighting in Ann Arbor. Strange flying objects sighted. Many witnesses see them zoom, explanation sought. Washtenaw County Sheriff's deputies are working with civil defense officials and Air Force officers in an attempt to find an explanation for four strange flying objects sighted over this area early this morning. Deputy Buford Bushrow called the objects the weirdest things I've ever seen. Bushrow and Deputy John Foster first saw the objects at 3.50 a.m. as the officers were cruising on Waters Road near Lima Center in Lima Township. They said there was a single red-green object at first moving at what was described at fantastic speed. 
The object appeared like a distant star and appeared in the northwest part of the sky, the deputy said. The officers notified the county jail headquarters of the object, and moments later, police agencies from Livingston County, Monroe County, and the city of Ypsilanti were in contact with the jail to report sightings of the strange object. Okay, this is in Michigan. And first of all, what I like here is that the cops see something, and they call it in. And mm-hmm. everybody else is like, holy crap, let's go look. Sure. This is the, also the 1960s. We're in the middle of the Cold War. They see something in the sky. Are they going to think it's a UFO or they think it's the Soviets? Right? So yeah. to me, this is interesting because now we immediately would think, oh, UFO, where back then... It's the Russians. Right, they take it seriously. Yeah. We're under attack. In 1961, Nikita Khrushchev banged his shoe at the table at the UN mm-hmm. and said, we will bury you. Mm-hmm. That's something to worry about. And so the fact that they see something in the sky and they don't just laugh it off. Oh, I don't know what it is. They call it in. And a whole bunch of people see this in Ann Arbor. And this is the famous one that Heineck, he has a specific explanation for. And then people end up kind of making fun of it for years. From Michigan NPR in 2017, quote, the official explanation, flares caused by the burning of gases bubbling up from the area's swamps, was unsatisfactory to those involved. Then Congressman Gerald Ford called for a congressional investigation that never happened, unquote. J. Allen Hyatt called it swamp gas. And, or at least that he was saying the potential explanations that were worldly. Yeah, and I always thought that was kind of a cop-out because they're saying that this gas is being released, but then something ignites it and right. creates that, and then they talk about ball lightning, but that's really also kind of a mysterious phenomenon that's not necessarily explained, so... So swamp gas to me is just as mysterious as a UFO. Yeah, exactly. This situation. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. But the thing is, he wasn't trying to make fun of it or just say like that's all you saw. He was presenting specific things. It's like, okay, here's other things it could be. And yeah. not saying like, oh, this is all you saw. And so swamp gas kind of gets, doesn't it gets in everybody's head. Now, this also starts a wave. Green Bay Press Gazette, Green Bay, Wisconsin, 1966. Wide area of state reports UFO lights. Monroe County officer gives chase. Sightings multiply in Michigan. Residents in a wide area of Wisconsin reported seeing mysterious moving lights in the sky Thursday night and early today. Descriptions of this phenomena range from white to bluish green to flashing red. Toma police were told by several persons around 7 p.m. Thursday of a round white light with occasional flashes of red and greenish blue traveling eastward. Monroe County traffic officer Dale Trowbridge said he drove his squad car 70 miles in following the light, losing sight of it over Juneau County. Portage County Sheriff's Office at Stevens Point said a squad car reported around 11 p.m. seeing a red and greenish light in the sky at a point believed to be west of Marshfield. At about the same time, squad cars of the Monroe and Jackson County Sheriff's Departments reported seeing similarly colored lights, which, however, stopped in reverse directions, traveling very fast. The Clark County Sheriff's Office at Nellsville reports sightings at 4.32 this morning of flashing lights south and west of Marshfield. Other reports of lights came from Waukesha and Milwaukee counties. It's also in Wausau. You know, they, they keep going on it. As reports of flying saucer whizzing through Michigan skies continue to multiply, as Air Force investigator called a news conference at Detroit today to discuss his probe with unidentified flying objects. Dr. J. Allen Hynek of Northwestern University, astrophysicist, called the conference after spending almost a week interviewing people in the nearby Ann Arbor and Hillsdale areas where most of the sightings have originated. Hynek, who has studied and investigated UFOs for the past 13 years, called the conference a day after the Air Force said it would have an explanation of the sightings within 24 hours. That's why it's swamp gas. Because mm-hmm. the Air Force said, I mean, all these cops see it. 
Yeah. And these cops are probably vets too. This is the 1960s, right? So these cops are probably people that fought either in, in World War II or, or Korea. Korea. Yeah. And so, I mean, just look at that. I mean, Roe County officer, he follows it for 70 miles. That's crazy. So swamp gas, how does that travel 70 miles? Bingo. Yeah. And the thing is, why is Heineck pressured to give that kind of explanation? It's because the Air Force is like, we have to explain it to these people. Yeah, they're trying to explain it away. Yeah. I just, I did not realize it was a Wisconsin connection to those Michigan sightings in 1966. And so what I'm finding is you have all these big sightings and things that are big in ufology over time. And somehow Wisconsin gets in the mix all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's just great. It's great for us who like to study and write about Wisconsin. Right. Coming up on part two of the Wisconsin Legends podcast, Wisconsin UFOs. We have three different UFO capitals. If you think Simonton was crazy, this one even gets nuttier. One of the things we missed from this episode and a special guest to tell us more. John Keel quipped in a title in a Fortean Times article in 1982 that Palmer was the man who invented flying saucers. Mike and I share our own UFO encounters. One time in Puerto Rico, I saw something that I thought might be an unidentified flying object. I looked up over at the tree line and I saw three glowing orbs, their amberish red color. That and so much more on the conclusion of the Wisconsin Legends podcast, Wisconsin UFOs. The Wisconsin Legends podcast is presented by American Ghost Ones. Hosted by Mike Huberty and Jeff Venom. Recorded at Sunspot Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. Edited by Jeff Venom. Audio engineer, Mike Huberty. Music by Sunspot and various artists. Find out more about the show, including show notes, at wisconsinlegendspodcast.com. Follow the guys at American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends on Instagram and Facebook. We'll see you next time.